0: Minutes from Latvia with Mike Collier.
1: Well, welcome back to the Minutes from Latvia podcast with me, Mike Collier. This is brought to you by Latvian Public Media, LSM. We're at that strange uh, time of the year, which Latvians call seasons, so between the seasons. It's the end of summer, beginning of autumn. I'm not quite sure which. But uh, whichever it is, I know you're all very keen to hear my weather report, uh, even though you're probably listening to this uh, days, weeks or months after it's recorded. It's a beautiful day, uh, and I hope that my guest in the pod will concur with this. We've had several days of extremely heavy rain, floods and so on. But are we downhearted? No, we're not, because I've got a good guest in the pod. We're going English today. His name is Philip Ruff, or to give him his uh, Latvian moniker, Philips Rufs. And uh, Philip is a, well, an historian, a researcher. He's got a wealth of stories to tell about the time he's uh, spent in Latvia, finding things out about Latvia, which often Latvians themselves weren't aware of. So welcome to the pod, Philip.
0: Labyrinth, Mike.
1: What brings
0: you to Latvia today? Well, it's a usual mixture of family and uh, research, uh, because my, my wife is Latvian. Mm-hmm.
1: But the kind of your primary uh, area of uh, expertise and interest, the way, where you've really kind of blazed a trail, is researching Latvian anarchists of the yes. turn of the 20th century. Um, could you tell us a little bit of the stories you've uncovered, particularly Peter
0: the Painter? Well, Peter the Painter is a, a huge sort of mythical, legendary figure in, in English folklore, on the sort of level of Robin Hood or Jack the Ripper. And he sprang to notoriety in uh, 1911 after a a run-in between a gang of, uh, it seemed, burglars, trying to burgle a jeweler's shop in East London, and the City of London police force. Unfortunately, it turned out they weren't normal, honest burglars, but a gang of ruthless Latvian anarchists who produced guns first and said it's a fair cop gov after five policemen were shot, three killed. Uh, it remains today the biggest uh, attack uh, of violence against English policemen. One of the, the Latvian anarchists was wounded by one of his comrades and fanned the next day in, uh, in a flat, the tenants of which had fled, and one of them was known by the nickname Peter the Painter. And... Well,
1: a couple of obvious questions for, for, for those who don't know the story is, what were they doing in England in the first place, and why was he called Peter the Painter? Yes,
0: ba- well, basically, that um, as Latvian uh, listeners may know, there had been a, a revolution in the Baltic in 1905 against the Tsarist Empire, and this had been brutally repressed at the end of 1905, which produced a, a huge diaspora, about 5,000 strong westwards. And these former revolutionaries who had been urban and rural guerrillas in Latvia, con- some of them continued their activities in the Baltic and f- in the form of armed resistance. And they financed that armed resistance against Russian state terrorism by making what they called expropriations, which we'd simply call robberies. There was a series of robberies, between 1908 and 1910, throughout England and Scotland uh, and America, which financed the production of revolutionary material that was shipped back to the Baltic and the purchase of arms, which was smuggled into the Baltic aboard ships uh, to continue this wave of armed resistance that uh, followed the crushing of the 1905 revolution. So all of their activities really came from that but we wouldn't have known anything about them had this one attempted burglary gone wrong, because that's what opened Mm -hmm. the window. So they'd already been there for a a few years? Yeah, it's clear. uh, It wasn't apparent when I started, but once I started digging, it's clear that it wasn't the first robbery. There had been an armed uh, stick-up of a wage delivery in Tottenham in 1909, known as the Tottenham Outrage, which was carried out by two Latvians, both of whom killed themselves. And there had been a famous bank robbery in Motherwell in Scotland in nineteen oh eight, again by two Latvians who were arrested and sent to prison, in Peterhead prison.
1: Well interesting one of the interesting things that that, that occurs to me is that you know, we don't actually know very much about turn of the century anarchism, you know, as a, as a layman, really. But, but what you do tend to think is, well, they're kind of ideological fanatics or they're ideologically driven. What you're saying suggests that actually they were economically driven in order to serve ideological ends, you know, elsewhere. So it wasn't that they were actually you know, attacking the British establishment as such. They were using economic resources which were available to try and overthrow Tsarism, presumably.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, they certainly were revolutionaries. They wanted to see an end to the Russian Empire. And in in that sense, they wanted what became Latvia and Estonia to to be independent because they saw that as the first step to a social revolution. Mm -hmm. And you couldn't have a social revolution without a national independence. But the terrorist at the time was Tsar Nicholas. And the indiscriminate violence was very much... The Russian state, Um, 19,000 armed troops were uh, unleashed on Latvia at the end of 1905 to devastating effect. So I think you should see the Latvian anarchists of the time as the sort of uh, equivalent of the French resistance in the Second World War or the Mm. Danish resistance. They were simply uh, defending themselves and and the, the Latvian population from a campaign of armed violence waged by the Russian army.
1: But if their aim was uh, you know, independent Latvia, we, you've kind of answered this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Why are they categorized as you
0: know, anarchists rather than,
1: say, nationalists? Or
0: They wouldn't have seen themselves as nationalists. They, they saw themselves as social revolutionaries. They simply noted as a matter of fact that you couldn't have a social revolution when you were still part of an imperial empire. So th- they wanted a, a revolution in what became Latvia. Hmm. Um, so and how did
1: they differ from, from you know
0: communists and so well, forth who were? Y- yeah, they called themselves anarchist communists, um, which uh, today has a different connotation than it did then. Then it simply meant they adhered to a, ver- a variety of libertarian communism espoused by people like Peter Kropotkin, yeah, uh, the author of Mutual Aid and uh, a number of other s- scholarly works written to demonstrate how anarchism would be possible as a social system in uh, uh, an, as an alternative to what existed at the time so they certainly were ideological they they translated Kropotkin into Latvian. and they published Kropotkin so they uh, they weren't mindless thugs yeah they had a definite ideology uh, they simply wanted a Latvia that was organized to the point where they didn't need government. In one article that they published they said we're against the Tsar, we're against the constitutional assembly, that would be a Latvian one, we're against the rule of the central committee, that was a dig at the Latvian social democrats. We want the working class to take over everything.
1: And is there any measure of how much support they had within the Latvian
0: population at large at this time? As well, uh, the short answer is no. But the long answer is yes, <laughs> because it's impossible to gauge what level of support Latvian anarchists had, yeah. because they, did, they didn't do any polls. But it is possible to, to say categorically that the majority of Latvians in Latvia in 1905 and, su- and subsequent to the independence of Latvia... Uh, were very much in support of the 1905 revolution. So in that sense, what began as a social struggle with strikes for better pay and conditions became effectively a national Mm. revolution in response to the uh, repression waged against that struggle. Well, I guess even though
1: the 1905 revolution didn't succeed as such, it did show that you could kind of get within touching distance, didn't it? So that must have sort of added impetus.
0: Yes, and this this led directly to the emergence of a Latvian anarchist movement because these revolutionaries, the, the, the generation of people I focus on in my book as a convenient hook to examine the social history of Latvia, all came out of the Latvian Social Democratic Workers' Party. But at about the same time that the revolution was being crushed by the Russians, the Latvian Party made a dramatic change and they went from a policy of armed struggle forced upon them by the social conditions to a line that, okay, the armed struggle has gone as far as it can go. We can't succeed as an insurgency. We will affiliate the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party despite the fact that the Russian Party was more than half the size of the Latvian party. The Latvians had 13,000 members. The Russian Social Democratic Labour Party had 6,000 members, a go figure. And, both of which, and,
1: incidentally, are way, way higher than any party in Latvia can currently boast it, yeah. uh, today. Uh,
0: and um, we'll also adopt the Russian party's platform, which is support entry into the, the new Duma, the parliament, that the Tsar has granted in response to the revolution and will pursue the uh, evolutionary role of achieving socialism via parliament. Well, you mentioned uh,
1: your book. Uh, could you tell us um, what it is? And uh, the process of writing it, I think, is very, very interesting. You've told me previously. It's that... called
0: Pastavu Liesma Debesis. It's called, in Latvian, Pastavu Liesma Debesis, which is taken from a Latvian poem by Bilsavīce. In English, it's simply called A Towering Flame, the life, of, and lo- the life and Times of Peter the Painter.
1: So can you just give us a potted biography of Peter then? Because he's an incredibly charismatic figure, uh, helped um, by the fact that he has these kind
0: of film-star good looks. Yeah, if you sort of cross David Beckham with the scarlet pim- pimpernel, <laughs> that's about him. But basically, he was a young uh, guy. He grew up in the saldus Talsi Kuldiger Triangle. Unusually well-educated for a farmer's son. His, his family were Latvian farmers in, around Saldos and Talsi. And uh, he went to prestigious German gymnasium in Kuldiga, which at the time was usually preserved for the sons of German barons. And became one of the founders of the Talsi branch of the Latvian Social Democrats in, I think, 1903. 1902, 1903. And uh, he started off giving out uh, illegal leaflets and socialist agitation at at Ligua celebrations and things like that. And eventually was wanted by the police for printing and distributing leaflets and uh, went to Belarus where he had an uncle who was a, a colonel in the Russian army and carried on his activities in Belarus and was finally arrested and put in prison in Minsk. And those processes were gone through and finished without, without him going to prison just in time for the 1905 revolution okay. at the end of 1904 whereupon he disappeared from the view of the police and became this m- mysterious comrade Murniex the land surveyor yeah. uh, who was basically the military leader of Latvia's 1905 revolution because comrade Murniex Janus Sjarklas to give him his real name was the leader of Riga Federative Committee's fighting organisation. And the Riga Federative Committee was the, the, body, the umbrella group for socialist organisations in Latvia that really was the uh, guiding force in the revolution.
1: And how old was he at this time?
0: Um, he, he was 22 when the revolution started. Okay. And still a very young 29 man. when the mysterious Peter the Painter disappeared. Okay.
1: So his kind of appearance in the window of history is reasonably brief, um, but his legend lives on. And I mean, why is that? I guess the culmination is the siege of Sydney Street, uh, which again is another of those incidents which you've kind of heard of as part of history in the in the UK. But again, the mechanics of it aren't really very well known, other than the fact that maybe that Winston Churchill
0: showed up. Yes. In it. Uh, the, the mystery and the legends very simple uh, and, and completely false, actually. After the, the shootings of the police, they eventually found two, two of this group of Latvian anarchists, the Liesma or Flame group, in uh, a, a flat in Sydney Street in Stepney. And there ensued a famous siege where the two anarchists were surrounded by 750 police armed policemen and a company of scots guards from the tower of london
1: which just tells you sort of how dangerous they thought they were presumably
0: yeah uh, commanded by winston churchill who'd leapt out of the bath when told <laughs> and rushed straight to the scene this must be an emergency to get him out of the bath. <laughs> <laughs> and of course nobody survived the siege but the rumor had it that a th- there was a third man a notorious shadowy figure called peter the painter who had been in the house and somehow escaped well what more do you need for a legend yeah and there was a famous wanted poster, £500, wanted for information leading to the capture of Peter Piatkov, known as Peter the Painter. Uh, the sad reality is Peter the Painter had left London and left England long before the siege of Sydney Street. Basically, the day after the house shootings, he borrowed half a crown off a friend and uh, got on a ferry to Belgium and uh, went to Paris and ended up in Switzerland. So firstly, he wasn't there. Secondly, he wasn't present at the Hounsditch shootings. And thirdly, although the police had announced this big splash for Mr Big, quietly, without announcing it in the press, they dropped him from the case because it quickly became apparent that he wasn't at Hounsditch, he wasn't at Sydney Street, there was no evidence against him. And at every stage subsequently in the future, when foreign police forces said, as they regularly did, oh, we think we've found Peter the painter. Right. What would you like us to do about it? The answer in private police communications was always insufficient evidence to proceed. uh, Please don't do anything.
1: I mean, do you think he served any purpose, even in his absence, as a kind of uh, bogeyman or as a, you know, Carlos the Jackal type figure? I see
0: the siege of Sydney Street and the myth of Peter the painter as a hook in which to hang on this bigger, more important story, which is the 1905 revolution in Latvia, in which Janus Jarkles was a major figure, absolutely major, and subsequent social history of Latvia. And in that wider story, which is basically what the book, my book tackles, as distinct from the English versions, which treat the stories as a true crime thriller, mm-hmm. uh, the London events really are nothing but a footnote. Right. But the, the much more important, exciting events happened in Latvia.
1: But I suppose there is, sti- I mean, even if he, he wasn't there at the, uh, the siege and he'd, he'd left uh, in good time, it is still quite extraordinary that he managed to just sort of carry on, reinvent a life, Maintain a low profile yes, for the I mean, rest that, of his
0: life. Yeah. That is real testimony to his uh, strengths. I mean, he was a very intelligent guy. He spoke six or seven languages, which wasn't unusual amongst these Kauyanekior fighters. Mm-hmm. You know, unlike the Soviet stereotype of the sort of peasant with a pitchfork, the average Latvian urban guerrilla uh, was very smartly dressed in a nice uh, three piece suit with a silk cravat. Yes, it's really worth and, checking out some and, of the
1: pictures you've collected They're amazing.
0: Spoke three or four or five or six languages, travelled to America, Paris, Berlin, London. <laughs> you know, routinely, and yeah. during the the activities, gun smuggling and so on. Um, were very intelligent people. And Janus Jarkles, um, in 1913, by which time he was living in Switzerland, decided, I, I want to. Emigrate to Australia and start a new life, which is actually quite a mature decision. When all of your friends and comrades are either dead or in prison, Mm. and uh, you know you believe yourself uh, to be the most wanted anarchist in the world, wanted for murder, and will hang in England. Of course, he didn't know that he none of that was true. Mm. He he thought for the rest of his life, I can't come out of the woodwork because I'll hang. In fact, he, he would have just had a normal life, because no, the only thing he was wanted for then was failure to appear f, uh, for enlistment into the Russian army in 1905. Okay. Which would, we'd <laughs> which, probably forgive him for. You know, <laughs> by the time of independent Latvia, that, uh, that was uh, more likely to have you clapped on the back as a hero rather than clapped in jail as a villain, so he could have had in, a normal life in contrast
1: with modern times as well
0: uh, it's quite surprising that uh, he, he
1: he didn't take the opportunity to write a kiss and tell biography at, uh, at,
0: at the end of his life he he decided to emigrate to Australia and have another life and not be found and that's exactly what he succeeded in doing because I can prove he went to Australia and I can prove he had an, uh, an Australian family with no Latvian connections that uh, Knew only that, uh, oh, a uh, great-great-granddad was a revolution in Latvia and d- did a lot of exciting things, but doesn't like to talk about it. And uh, please don't ask him because it's taboo. Don't ask him. And that family, the uh, Australian family, is still there. The mystery pers- continues because I still haven't fa- haven't found out what name they're living under. But I know they're there. <laughs>
1: Well, on that note, a note of mystery, we'll bring the uh, first long half of the podcast uh, to an end, and we'll be back again in a couple of minutes.
0: Minutes from Latvia with Mike Collier.
1: Well, welcome back to the Minutes from Latvia podcast. My name is Mike Collier. This is brought to you by Latvian Public Media, LSM, and I'm joined in the pod by Philip Ruth. Uh, who's been telling us some fascinating history about uh, Peter the Painter, anarchism, and the 1905 revolution uh, in Latvia? Um, it was a couple of years ago, Philip. I saw you giving a lecture at the Stockholm School of Economics here in uh, here in in Latvia. Um, In fact, it was February 2015, and it was on a subject which, I mean, it's a shame you don't give a reprise of that today, I think, because uh, you seem to have been at least two years ahead of everyone else. The subject was, uh, well, essentially sort of partisan activity, uh, resistance, civil resistance to occupying forces, again, kind of based on your researches into uh, revolutionary activity, but also bringing in interesting examples from, for example, uh, British attempts to prepare for the Nazi invasion and so on. Everyone seems to be talking about this now, so I just wondered if you could give us, uh, again, a a sort of brief version of uh, what you found and what your recommendations as far as resistance to any possible future military occupation threat might be
0: yeah at the time i i gave the, the talk uh, i was seriously worried that uh mr putin uh, had serious plans to come into latvia and and i thought uh and i think it was more of a threat then than it is now because that was before the nato forward contingents had been yeah Dropped in, uh, which it's enhanced forward con- presence. Cons- it a considerable um, amount of time to do that because you don't move tanks quickly. Um, and uh, so, I thought, what what happens if if Russian fo- uh, armed forces suddenly appear in Riga, which was then a, a, a possibility, and it struck me very strongly that there was a, a big parallel between. That situation and the situation that the Latvian anarchists had to deal with in the f- fallout after uh, the failure of the 1905 revolution when their activities were based on civil and partisan resistance in much the same way that uh, happened in Latvia after the end of the Second World War with the Measure Brali, the, the Forest Brothers experience. So it's interesting to note the first use of the term measure Brawley was in the 1905 revolution. When oh, really? Effectively, they were the, It was the same thing. It was operating as a guerrilla fighter in the countryside. And when I looked at uh, the measure Brawley post World War II experience, there was a crucial difference, and that was. The people who became Mezhabrali, a large proportion of which had been conscripted into the German armed forces and were forced to go to the forest as the only real alternative to being shipped off to the Gulag or executed by the the victorious Soviet occupation. They chose to try and construct an armed resistance on conventional military lines. They, w- they wanted to put together regiments with a hierarchy and generals and you find the first thing they did was to write the aims and principles and yeah. big arguments about what are our aims and principles and who's going to be the general and who's going to be the captain and who's going to make the tea and instead of saying where do we get guns from how do we organize against infiltration effectively what form of uh, armed operations, can we mount against an occupant? That was uh, uh, because, of course, the World War II Latvian resistance had been fed fairy tale by the British and Americans that, hold on boys, help is coming. Yeah. And uh, while they were fighting for their lives in the forests of, of Latvia, Churchill and Roosevelt was busy selling the Baltics down the Swanee to uh, Stalin at Yalta. So... Uh, That was a very tragic episode. And I thought, well, if this is going to happen again, as it seemed to me it might, what's a better way of doing it? And it it was obvious to me that the anarchist way of independent uh, affinity groups, as they're known within the anarchist movement, which are basically groups of friends who you know and trust and are on the same wavelength with, they can operate independently. All they need is to get arms. And, of course, the biggest... uh, problem with the post-war measure probably was kgb infiltration Mm. and would be again if there was any uh, repeat of the donbass scenario in the baltic yeah i should just
1: just uh, interject at this point that uh, we do have a series on uh, the lsm english site at the moment which is um, retrieving uh, pieces of the CIA archives which uh, uh, concern the Mejibrali and the resistance. And it does kind of support um, what you're saying about infiltration, about not really, you know, despite the apparent rigid discipline and so on the fact that this wasn't always hugely effective so it's worth um if you if you're interested in this subject then please check out some of the uh the um features that we've produced in recent weeks on this
0: and and the anarchist specifically anarchist component in this is the idea that when your country is occupied and the government stru- structures break down uh, despite the fact that the governments will still try and maintain a monopoly of legitimate violence that is the state the armed forces the police you know there are certain legally sanctioned people who can carry lethal weapons um, that all goes out of the window when the country's occupied and you'll be back in a situation of the french resistance or the baltic after 1905 when or ukraine uh, in 2014 when the bulk of the fighting is not done by the army the bulk of the fighting is done by the civil population. That's particularly apparent in Ukraine, where they form volunteer battalions, which did most of the fighting against these little green men.
1: Mm. I thought one of, the, one of the other things from your lecture that still resonated with me was when you, you, you said that, OK, the Mezhabrali, this rural rural based force mm-hmm. and you were you were saying that a far more effective uh sort of modus operandi is something like the ira yeah. were doing during the during the 70s where it's urban where it's much easier to get lost in a city
0: rather than in the forest which it seems counterintuitive yeah well in the forest unfortunately technology has marched on mm. and uh it's possible now for uh, a counter guerrilla force to fly over the forest with heat seeking uh, imagery and find exactly <laughs> where yeah. where the bunkers are and where the the, the, the rural guerrillas are hiding under a bush so it's it's much easier to get lost in a crowd than to get lost in a, a, an empty forest mm. um and th- there are countless uh, uh examples of, of urban guerrilla resistance by a a, a, a a citizen militia or Uh, an urban guerrilla organisation, the IRA is a classic example, which fought the British government to a a standstill and uh, basically got themselves into the government of Northern Ireland, despite all all the lies and propaganda that was waged against them. And, you know, an occupying force has the one crucial weakness and that is they have to to occupy territory and that ties up tremendous resources. Mm. And makes them tremendously vulnerable, as anybody who'd served in the British Army in Northern Ireland will be able mm. be able to tell you.
1: Well, there were also some very chastening facts in your presentation, I thought, regarding things like you know what it, what would be a realistic life expectancy of a, of a resistance uh, fighter, and you know it's a matter of days and weeks rather than months.
0: Yeah, I mean, even even in the, the Irish example, I think the best operators. It probably lasted months. Probably three years would be the average active uh, career mm. of an operator before they were either captured and put in jail or shot or blown up by their own bombs. Yeah. <laughs> so what would you say would be like, say, the, the golden rules of uh, civil resistance? You, you have to replace the, loss, the losses, which is why the insurgency in Northern Ireland continued because they lost thousands of men thousands of men were imprisoned on on, you know on both sides on the loyalist and the republican side so 1905 was successful in the sense that that basically the whole of the population that were latvian supported the insurgency and any armed resistance needs that support Mm. so if russia in in any real or imaginary scenario occupied latvia the civilian population needs access to arms and training before that happens. And uh, one final thing, Uh, your
1: book is published in Latvian, but as far as I'm aware, it's not available in English. Is there
0: any plans to remedy that situation? It will be available in English very soon because uh, under the auspices of my publisher, Dianis Gramata, we shall be producing a limited edition English paperback version Uh, specifically to present at the London 2018 Book Fair, which I believe is in March, where the rights to publish an English version will be on offer to (laughs) all intelligent uh, uh, book publishers who will attend...
1: But it's nice that we'll have an Englishman who's come to Latvia, written something about Latvian history, which also fills in an important gap in uh, British history as well, I think. Thank you for joining me in the pod, Philip. Thank you for having me. Mate. And um, good luck with your future research, because I know it's, it's ongoing. It seems to be ever ongoing with you. The and, book is and... being updated daily. <laughs> OK, excellent. And um, I'll be back again with another podcast in a couple of weeks. So I'll see you then and be
0: Minutes from Latvia with Mike Collier. Produced by Renar Steymans for Latvian Public Media. Find out more at www.lsm.lv.